The message you are listening to is recorded by Campus Outreach for the 2019 Campus Outreach New Year's Conference. More information about Campus Outreach New Year's Conference can be found at conycnd.com. So, uh, anyway, we thought that'd be fun. But in, in all seriousness, I do want to bring up Leanne, if you want to come on up. And then, uh, this is uh, Leanne Stiles, 41 years of completing Mac. And then also uh, Tristan and Emily Stiles. Emily is, used to be a Vanco, uh, but uh, her family is also in the crowd there. But it, Tristan and Emily and their daughter Anna are here, and we wanted to bring them up. <laughs> Come here, Anna. Come here. Hi. Say, see all the people out here. Uh, this is uh, the, the reason we wanted to do this, and Mac, you may want to say a few words about this. But just to give you guys a picture of generational faithfulness of uh, a man and a woman who have lived out the truths that he's been teaching you know that's real important the authentic nature of saying that you believe something and then living it out in your life day in and day out year after year month after month and and this is a picture of God's faithfulness to Mac and Leanne and I think we all enjoy seeing this and long for this in our own lives and so uh, Mac you want to say a few words about this well, I and just, then I want to pray for you I think one of the greatest gifts to God in our life, especially as we've gone overseas, is that uh, all three of our boys love Jesus and are walking with him, and they married awesome women, <laughs> Emily being uh, just an incredible person, and uh, I think we might love her a little more than our son, uh, <laughs> so if something happens in the marriage, we're going to keep her. Uh, her parents are here, Joe and, and Kathy are here, and of course we we're kind of like a campus outreach mafia, you know, John Ivanko's related, and we're all, we're all related. So, I mean, what a joy to be here with you guys and, and to do this. We can't imagine anything better in terms of how we would spend our lives. Awesome. So, yeah, we're grateful. Amen. Well, uh, I, I think, I, you know, brother, I can speak for many of us in this room. I, I come from a, a broken home, a home where uh, the picture is much different, and I know many of you do. And and, and, and folks like you have been models for me for my 25 years in ministry and life to see God's promises lived out. So thank you for your thank faithfulness. You, thank yeah. you to the Lord for his faithfulness. And I hope you guys can see that the gospel lived out day in and day out and the simple things of just raising kids and loving each other well yeah. bears fruit. So yeah. thank can you. we take a selfie? Yeah, please. Can you just, okay. Just, okay, can, can you all, uh, oh, no, no, I'm kidding. So here, here we go. Okay, everybody wave. Awesome. awesome. All right, well, let me, let me pray. I'm going to pray for, y'all stay here. I'm going to pray for y'all's family, pray for your legacy, and then I'm going to pray for Mac as he gives us the word one last time before he leaves tomorrow. Our Father, we're grateful to be on this uh, moment sharing this anniversary with Leanne and, and Mac. Thank you for 41 years of covenant marriage. Lord, we praise you for that. We know that that's an act of your grace. The ups and downs of life and travel and forgiving one another and repenting to one another. We thank you that they have uh, been able to walk this far with each other. And I pray that you'd bless them in these coming years to do that with greater fervency and intimacy and kindness and uh, courage to one another. 
thank you for Tristan and Emily and little Anna and the picture that they give as well as a, a young couple starting on their own journey. And I pray for them that they would see years of that same journey of repentance and forgiveness and courage and faith and love as they are with each other. And then, Lord, I would dare pray for all thousand of us that this generation would see a change in how people view relationships, whether that's marriage or through a call to singleness, that we would be a covenant community devoted to one another in love. We love because you first loved us. I pray that that message would seep through and out of this room to the campuses and the families and the cities and the nations that we will all go to. May you be given the glory and may Jesus receive what he died for, which was an inheritance of nations, and we thank you for that. Now bless the teaching of your word. May it penetrate our hearts uh, and our minds and change our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I was so nervous on our wedding day. I, I don't think I would remember it except that I have pictures of the event. <laughs> but I do remember when Leanne walked in. She was so beautiful. And uh, I was so smitten. That's the one, my one memory is kind of her walking in and just thinking, oh my goodness, I love her. And I love her now more than I did then, which is amazing, 40 one year she stuck with me. We've done so much together. I see how great of a gift that I have been given by, by God in her all my life. You know, the world around loves love. And um, this evening I want to take a closer look at a closer walk with God. And at its heart, it, it's about love. So let me recap. Our, our first session two nights ago, we talked about a, a closer look at the big picture of the gospel and the four questions Robert answered for me at that ski camp in Zermatt, Switzerland so many years ago. Yesterday morning, we took a closer look at the identity of Jesus. We, we looked more at Christ. Last night, we talked about a closer look at our response to Jesus as Lord um, and tonight, I want, I want to take a closer look at a closer walk. Jesus said, we read the passage earlier, if you love me, you will keep my commandments in John 14. Jesus links love and obedience. Now, there are bad reasons to obey. We don't obey to obtain our salvation. Your salvation comes to you the moment you believe. We don't earn it. We don't obey to look good. That was the sin of the Pharisees. It was all external for them. We don't obey to be better than everyone else. That's prideful sin. But there are some good reasons that we do obey. And I want to give you four of them very quickly. It's number one, good for us. Jesus knows what's best for us because he made us. 
Candles are usually a part of birthday celebrations, at least in our family, and especially when the children are little. And our son David, on his third birthday, desperately wanted to grab the flame of the candle. And he cried when we wouldn't let him do it. But we would be bad parents to let him burn himself. The same is true for us in our obedience to Jesus. We don't know as he knows. He knows better what's good for us. Secondly, we obey to fight hypocrisy. So if, if someone tells you that they love you, but then they treat you badly, they are loving themselves and, not ju and just using you for what they can get out of you. That's not love. It's hypocrisy. The same is true for those who say they love Jesus but don't really do what he says. They say things for what they think they can get out of Jesus. Jesus challenges that kind of thinking in Luke 6:46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but do not do what I tell you? It's hypocrisy to say that we love Jesus but not love what he loves, not do what he asks. You know, for all the sins that Jesus could have condemned in his day, the sin that he most picked out to condemn was hypocrisy. Thirdly, to obey is to see God. Sin deceives. Sin blinds. Sin prevents us from seeing God clearly. Purity, purity of heart gives sight. In Matthew 8, uh, verse 8, Matthew 5, verse 8, excuse me, the Bible says, the pure in heart see God. And the fourth and best reason to obey God is to show our love for Jesus. If you love me, Jesus said, you will keep my commandments. We obey Jesus out of our love for him, for what he's done for us, for the fact that he's given us this gift of sal salvation, this great salvation. Our love and obedience to Jesus is a response out of love for his love for us. Now, there's... Lots of points of obedience that we could talk about this evening. Developing a prayer life, sexual purity, discipleship, daily devotions, me meeting with your campus outreach staff worker, which is an excellent thing to do. There's many things we could talk about. But I have two specific points of obedience that are critical keys for spiritual health. And often I've found over the years a weak point for college students. They are, number one, living a gospel-centered life. I want to unpack that for you. And secondly, living in gospel-centered community, primarily the church. And we'll unpack that as well. So first, living a gospel-centered life. I have three points. Know the gospel, live the gospel, and speak the gospel. So number one, first point, Know the gospel. If you're going to live a gospel-centered life, you need to know the gospel. 
1 Peter 3.15 says, Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that is in you. So, a good place to start in understanding the gospel is to memorize a gospel outline. But it's so much more than that because you must be able to answer questions about it according to Peter. It's to become students of the gospel that you, you study the message inside and out. Look, you guys spend four years, some of you spend five years, some of you six. I spent five years in college studying my major. You should take time to study and commit to understanding Jesus' message of the gospel that's for all eternity. You're going to live your life by it. So understand the gospel. Start by understanding the word gospel. The word gospel is the message from God that leads us to salvation. That's all it is. The word gospel means the message from God that leads us to salvation. Whether that word is found in the Old Testament where it's translated good news or in the New Testament where it's stated as gospel, that's what it means. So understand that word. Understand the word evangelism, which is a biblical word. I know it's a, I know it's a dirty word for some people, but evangelism is a biblical word. So in 1 Corinthians 5.11, Paul says, since we know the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. So when we share the gospel, it only means that we're teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade. That's all. Evangelism is not a method. It's not a strategy. It's just teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade. And you should be able to know that message. You should know it cold. And as you know, I, I like to think of it in four parts. God, our creator God, is holy, just, and loving. We are broken and sinful, yet made in the divine image of God. Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man who lived a perfect life on earth to become a perfect sacrifice on the cross. He was a miracle worker. He taught God's ways. And when he died on the cross, he died for our sin. To end the curse of death, he paid the penalty for our sins on the cross. He rose from the grave, conquering death. And proving that his words were true. Our response, which is God calls us to turn from unbelieving sin and unbelieving lifestyles and put our full trust and faith in Jesus. So the gospel message that I just said takes maybe 45 seconds, 30 seconds. It takes a lifetime to live out. Which is the second part of gospel life. So we know the gospel, but we also secondly speak the gospel. Or excuse me, live the gospel. We don't just know the gospel, we live a gospel-centered life. We want our lives to be consistent with the gospel. We want our lives to commend the gospel. So in Galatians 2.14, Paul, Paul, the context here in Galatians 2, Paul is talking about a little fight that he had with the apostle Peter. And he's explaining to the Galatians how they got into it. Uh, and, and this is what he says. This is not the main point, but I, I'm just pulling this out for you. In verse 14, chapter 2 of Galatians, I saw that their conduct, he's talking about Peter and some other of the, the guys that were there. I, when I saw their conduct was not in step 
with the truth of the gospel. In other words, then he goes on to explain why he rebuked Peter. But the point is that we can be out of step with the truth of the gospel. Paul is saying that we need to walk in line with the truth of the gospel. So, so the gospel is not just how we come to faith, although it, it is that, but it's more than that. It's also how we live. It has bearing on, well, it has bearing on marriage. It has bearing on singleness. It has bearing on racism and sexism and our view of people in general. It has bearing on our careers. It has bearing on our sexuality and your identity and your self-image. Now, any one of those things I've just listed, I, we could spend a whole talk on each one of those things, or, or longer, a whole seminar on each one of those things. But let me, let me pull out just one, self-identity, because it was also in the passage we read in John 14, to show you how this works. So Jesus said he would not leave us as orphans in John 14, in the passage that we read. And when we come to faith, we understand that we are adopted by God into the family of God. That's a gospel theme. That's a gospel understanding of the transformation that happens in our lives as a result of the gospel's work. And so Romans 8.15 says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into in fear, but you have, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. But without gospel thinking, there's many Christians who live as orphans. They live as orphans in the world, not as adopted sons and daughters. So let me, let me contrast for you, as, as a way of example, this idea of what it means to be adopted in gospel thinking and what orphan thinking is. I have seven things. I had eight things, a list of eight things last night. I have a list of seven things here. So number one, how orphans think. Orphans fear a chaotic world and so live by rules. Adopted sons and daughters know the world is broken and chaotic but live by the rule of love. 1 Corinthians 9.21. You see how that works in our lives? How gospel thinking changes our self-identity? Number two, orphans make their own way. They feel they have to watch out for themselves. Adopted sons and daughters trust the care and oversight of Jesus so they know rest. Three, orphans are suspicious of the motives of others and even of God. Adopted sons and daughters seek the good of others and trust the Lord to work in the hearts of others, no matter the motive. Four, orphans fear rejection. They insulate themselves often by rejecting first. Adopted sons and daughters are vulnerable and they take risks to love each other just as Jesus was vulnerable for us. Number five, orphans are unsure if God cares for them. Adopted sons and daughters are confident in the love of God. Number six, orphans feel the need to prove themselves to win the approval of God and others. 
While adopted sons and daughters know that God's uh, statement about Jesus to Jesus at his baptism in Mark chapter 1, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, also applies to them for all who are found in Christ Jesus. Because they are in Christ, they know God is pleased with them too. Orphans live seven. Orphans live independent of the family. It's what they're used to. Adopted sons and daughters love the family of God, the church, and they push into the family. So you see this as an example of how to apply the gospel to all areas critical to the gospel. That's how we take the gospel and make it meaningful in our lives. That's how we live out the gospel. There's a lot of work to do that. That's why I can say it takes a minute to say the gospel. It takes a lifetime to live it out. Because you can apply gospel principles to everything. And you should. It's not just the ABCs of the Christian life. It's the hub of the Christian life. Thirdly, finally, speak the gospel. The gospel is a message that must be spoken. The Bible says we are ambassadors for Christ. So Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.20, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. Now, I, I live in a world of ambassadors. I mean, there's ambassadors and consul generals all around us. But a lot of people here don't really have the concept that Paul did about ambassadorship. Let me, let me illustrate what I mean by that. So, I was in Tunisia. We were directing a program there. And uh, we assigned university students from the campus ministry into Muslim homes. And it was a great opportunity uh, for relationships to form and friendships and often spiritual conversations. Almost in every case, there would be great conversations about the gospel. Now, I, when I grew up in Owensboro, Kentucky, which was a little bit like growing up in the Shire, <laughs> uh, you know, a great place to grow up, but a little isolated, I didn't really understand much about the Arab people. But I, I recognized uh, that most, most people in Owensboro kind of feared Arabs. Uh, there was a lot of fear about the Arab community, Arab people. So you can imagine my surprise when we started directing this program in Tunisia to discover over time, as we developed these relationships with students, that, that that's how they felt about Americans, that they had great fears about Americans. And so one of the great things about getting together was the great friendships that formed over uh, the weeks and months that we were there living in these Muslim homes. There was a particular guy there named Hatem. Hatem was kind of a practical joker. Uh, he was always pulling pranks on people. It was a lot of fun. And uh, he and I developed this friendly relationship, kind of a competitive relationship. And uh, one day, Hatem took us and a couple students out uh, to the beach, the Muslim beach, where we could play around uh, away from kind of the decadent European beaches that are in Tunisia. And uh, so I'm out on the beach with Hatem, and there's this sandbar out maybe 100 yards, 
And I say, come on, Hottam, I'll, I'll race you out to the sandbar in fitting with our relationship. I used to be on the swim team, you know, I'm going to take him on. And Hottam is, you know, no, no, I must go take a cigarette. So I say, okay, you go have your nicotine fit. I'm, I'll meet you out there. So I start leisurely swimming out to this sandbar. Well, Hottam, uh, this is true to form to Hottam, of course, he dove underneath me and he was going to beat me out of the sandbar, but that was not going to happen. So uh, I, I see him. And, and the water is crystal clear blue, and I start a shadow over on top of him, and, uh, and then he comes up, right, and right, perfect, right in front of me. He doesn't know I'm behind me, uh, he's behind, I'm behind him, and I grab him in a perfect chokehold, and I take him down, kaboosh, and I bring him back up, and he's sputtering, I'm laughing, and just for good measure, kaboosh, I bring him back up again, I spin him around, and it's not hot him. It is a very frightened Tunisian who knows I've come to kill him personally. <laughs> and, uh, you know, what do you say? I'm so, I'm so sorry. He doesn't speak English. And his eyes are big as saucers. He never takes, he starts backpedaling like this to the beach. And then I have sort of this out-of-body experience where I see his extended and rather buff family gathering on the beach. Now, they are not angry yet. But, you know, I envision this is, this is where I'm going to die, you know, on the beaches of Tunisia. And so I'm following this guy up, and his family is gathering. And, uh, I, you know, he's, he starts hitting the beach, you know, his, when his feet hit the sand, man, he's, he's really backing up. And uh, you know what I need, right? I need an ambassador. <laughs> I need someone who speaks the language and can explain this sad, death-like situation. And guess who shows up at that point? Hottam, you know, hey, what is going on here? He's smoking a cigarette. I said, Hottam, come here. I grab him by the arm. I bring him. I explained to Hottam what's just happened. Fortunately for, you know, my 41 years of marriage, Hottam thinks this is hilarious. <laughs> Tears are streaming down his face as he's explaining to this family what I've done. Now, the kid I dunked, I never saw again. I think he went right to the parking lot and left. But I made great friends with the family. <laughs> they had a big tent, Arab tent. I was invited in for lunch. <laughs> uh, that's ambassadorship, right? That's what we're called to. So when Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.20, therefore we are ambassadors, somehow, I don't know how this works, but when you sit down with a friend and you, you have a cup of coffee and you're talking about things and suddenly uh, something spiritual comes up and you're in a spiritual conversation somehow, somehow from the throne of God through you to that person, you represent the form power of the kingdom of God. That's an astonishing thought. It's astonishing that God would use us that way and it's what's been given to us. So there's a number of things you can work on to be a good ambassador. Let me give you a couple of them. Number one, you need to have confidence in the gospel. Believe that it's going to work in people's lives. You may not see it, but it will. Speak the gospel. Be bold and clear with the gospel. Don't be wishy-washy with the gospel. Romans 1.16 says, Do, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And you know, when Paul was in jail, uh, he had 
prayer request for boldness. That's what, so he had lots of, he prayed for people a lot, but when he gave a prayer request, it was usually for boldness or clarity with the gospel. So in Ephesians 6.19, you can look it up, but Paul asks for prayer that he would be fearless with a willingness to step out with the gospel. And listen, if Paul needed prayer, how much more do, do we? If Paul needed prayer uh, in jail because he's afraid, how much more do we? You know, most of the world, and most of the world I live in right now in Iraq, fears the raised fist. While most of us here in America fear the raised eyebrow. Raised eyebrows are not going to kill you. You may not like it. You may feel ashamed. You may feel tempted to be ashamed. But I want to commend Paul's prayer to you. Pray for boldness and clarity as you speak the gospel. Know the gospel, live the gospel, speak the gospel. There's a second thing that I think is critical besides evangelism or the gospel life and a gospel-centered life when we talk about, about that, that's critical for university students, college students in the world today. The second thing I want to focus on in a, in a closer walk is community, the community of believers. Um, so I want to talk about church life. And I also have three things about the church. Know the church, live out the church, and understand how the church proclaims the gospel. One of the things I want to say, campus outreach is one of the, one of the best parachurch student ministries I know of. That's why I'm so thrilled to be here. Um, they're not paying me to say this. <laughs> um, it is a great thing in your life. And you're probably not going to, have an opportunity as a student to do this again, ever. But it's not the church. It's not the church. Campus outreach and university is not real life because it comes to an end. It's just months of your life. But the church will continue. Jesus promises that the church will last until Jesus comes back. And so I'd like to focus on the church as part two of a way to love the things that Jesus loves. Now, in part, I want to do that because I think it's a weak place in college student life. I think college students are the best at helping form community, but often I think they miss out on the church. Um, and, and so let, I want to walk through these three points. Number one, know the church. To love the church, you must know what the church is. The church is the bride of Christ. And Jesus loves his bride. I love my bride. So when someone speaks about her, they're usually pretty careful about how they talk. Yeah. So you should keep that in mind when you're talking about the church. You're talking about something Jesus loves. And you should be careful. I hear a lot of people bad-mouthing the church. A lot of Christians bad-mouthing the church. And often it's because people don't know what a church is at heart. What is it? Like if you take one piece of it out, what are the irreducible parts of church? And many are confused about what the church is. Even at its most basic, campus outreach is not the church. Prayer meetings are not the church. A Christian concert 
is not the church. It's a wonderful thing. I was at a third day concert. I heard the lead singer say, we're having church here. And I was like, no, no we're not. Here's a baseline definition. The church is a gathering of God's people who sit under the teachings of the, ba the Bible, who practice the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper at its most basic. You find those four things, God's people, under the word, practicing those two sacraments, you found a church. But that doesn't mean it's a vibrant or healthy church. The goal is a healthy church based on what the Bible says is important for a church. And the Bible actually has very specific things to say about church, but it's not a whole lot. So here's a more careful definition to add to those four things. A biblically healthy church is a cross-focused, gospel-proclaiming, Bible-drenched, regular gathering of baptized believers covenanted together to care for one another in gospel love as a display of God's glory. That's the church. And that's the aim. Those are the irreducible parts of church, of a biblical church. And if you take any one of those things away, you have a, certainly you have a diminished church. And consequently, you have a diminished gospel. So know that. And that little red book I gave you, uh, or showed you last night, I didn't give it to you. I'd love to give it to you, actually. Uh, but that little red book I showed you on uh, evangelism last night has that definition a little more, one page, page 73. Buy that book or get it or download it or steal it from a friend. So let me, let me talk to you about the second thing about church is how to live the church, how to live in the church. I don't mean physically. Uh, I, don't, I don't mean that I mean with a good heart so the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10 do not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near gathering for the church is not just a nice idea it's a command we are commanded to gather as a community as a church the mark of those who regularly gather with church fellowship is Growing spiritual life. So I was on a panel. I was, I was asked, Mac, what was the one sermon that really, that really just changed your life? And I said, you know, it really, there's never been one sermon that just did it all for me. Actually, it was the constant, ongoing washing of the word. As I sat faithfully in church and listened to sermons and listened to the gospel being preached and washed over week in and week out that constant, consistent growth that came from regular fellowship. I think there's this tendency in America to look for the one thing, the silver bullet, that's going to solve everything. It's not going to happen that way. Spiritual life is farming work. It's about the ongoing discipleship of constant and ongoing slow growth. One of the best ways to tell that someone is off the rails spiritually is if they stop fellowship, uh, stop their fellowship in a church. So I want to I recommend to you, become a member of a church, even if you're a student, even if you live other places. 
become a member of a local church. To love the church is not just an academic exercise. Like I can't just say I love Leanne academically. <laughs> uh, I can't just read a book and say I love Leanne. No, I, you, you have to live in it. You have to experience it. So be a part of a healthy gospel-centered church. Campus Outreach is committed to this. That's why I think it's one of the best parachurch ministries out there. They're committed to the local church. So if, if you don't know of a local church to go to, or if you think the church you go to is off the rails, it's not a gospel-centered church, I want to commend to you the church that your campus outreach staff goes to. Go with them. Know the church, live in the church, and finally, let the church speak. So my, that, book on, that little book on evangelism is subtitled, How the Whole Church Speaks of Jesus. Now this applies actually to your campus fellowship too. But churches that love one another across boundaries is one of the greatest images of the gospel. And that's because Jesus said in John 13, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. John 13, 14. Jesus said that in the upper room to the disciples right before he was crucified. And then later he, he speaks to them uh, in the upper room in that long soliloquy that starts in John 13, goes 14, 15, 16. And then in chapter 17, he prays what's called the high priestly prayer. It ends this long preaching teaching that Jesus does in the upper room. He ends with this prayer that says, so that the world, uh, let, let them be unified, O God, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That's John 17, 20 and 21. So get this, understand, Jesus is saying that your love, one for another, especially across boundaries, is a statement that we are truly converted. By their love, one for another, they will know that, uh, that, that they are my, dis they're, they're my disciples. And when we're unified in the church, according to uh, chapter 17, we show the world that Jesus is the Son of God. So, so our, our love confirms our discipleship, and our unity together confirms Christ's deity. And I don't know of a greater powerful witness than that. Besides the spoken word, we speak the message. Remember, I've said that. But next to that, the most powerful thing you can do is love each other in community. So uh, in the United Arab Emirates, in Dubai, when we formed a campus fellowship, the, the students were from all over the world. And we had people that hated each other getting together and loving each other. So we had Pakistanis and Indians who are at war, and Palestinians and Syrians and Iraqis who are all at war, and Americans who's at war with everybody. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mean, you know, we're all there together, and we're loving each other. And I'm not kidding about this. We'd be in the, the university cafeteria. It just looks like your all's cafeteria, just exactly the same. even has Kentucky Fried Chicken, like everybody in Pizza Hut. And people literally would come up to us and said, hey, I think I heard about you guys. Are you the United Nation delegation that's here? And we go, no, no, we're Christians. And the students were a lot bolder than me. We're Christians, and we love each other. And if you want to know what that means, you need to come to the Bible study next week in Mac's office. And they'd point to me <laughs> in my office. 
and the right because it's so powerful. These verses are foundational because they show us that the church is to be a culture of evangelism just by very nature of who we are. That shapes our evangelistic efforts. So, so remember, just remember, loving other Christians affirm our genuine conversion in Christ and uniting with other believers shows that Jesus is the Son of God. In, in our church in Iraq, uh, we have people, again, from all over the world. They're members. Many of them have made great sacrifices to be members. Our church is small. We have about 60 members. We have about another 60 people that come. Uh, many who are not members but are regular attenders. Probably another 60 people that wander in and out. Which packs out our small little church building. Um, now if you looked at our church, you wouldn't think it was anything all that special. We do have a band. We're pretty bad. Um, you know, we sit on these horrible pews. I don't know why we have a PowerPoint. We have a PowerPoint, but the electricity goes out five or six times a day in Iraq. And so when it goes out, you know, we're in Stygian darkness. And, you know, I have to use my phone flashlight to see my notes. And we are super multi-ethnic. With 30 nation, 25, 30 nationalities in our church, loving each other, you wouldn't believe the power. The kind of power that we're seeing. Every week we have people from all faith backgrounds attending. Almost weekly someone tells me it's the first time they've ever been at church, ever heard the gospel. And we as a church welcome them warmly. The thing I most love to do as a pastor weekly is opening God's word to people who are hungry for God's word. Regularly I say, we do not want an American church. We do not want an African church. We do not want an Asian church. We do not want an Arab church. We do not want a Kurdish church. We want a biblical church. That's what we want. We want a church that follows Jesus. I feel so privileged to announce such gospel good news in a land that knows nothing of God's reconciliation or forgiveness or love. A land filled with vengeance and violence and retribution. You can't imagine how radical the hope of Jesus is, the love of Jesus is, the offer of reconciliation, not just with God, but also with others when we apply the gospel, gospel living in the context of our church. And people respond. We've had 18 baptisms just in the last two years that I've been there people who've come from all faith backgrounds, not any of them children, none of them Western, all came to faith through what they saw in the church. Let me tell you about uh, a couple, Jafar and uh, a woman I'll call Miss Kurdistan. Uh, Miss Kurdistan came to faith in the church uh, through the witness of some people there and just seeing what was going on in church and she wanted to be baptized. In her country of origin, to be baptized is a death sentence, immediate death sentence, no due process of law, immediate. Uh, but her husband, Jafar, Muslim man, was willing for her to be baptized. He was a nominal Muslim, he didn't really care that much. And Kurdistan had come to faith very powerfully. We had a baptism ceremony. We explained not to take pictures, that it was dangerous, of course. And after the service, Jafar wrote me a letter. He, does, he doesn't speak English, 
uh, Kurdistan, Miss Kurdistan helped him write the letter. And um, it was, he said in this email, it was the first time he had ever attended a church ever in his life and he wanted to give me some reflections. Now, his English wasn't real good, I cleaned it up a bit, but he said he noticed three things. Listen to these three things, it's amazing. Number one, he noticed the unity of the church across many ethnic lines. He noticed the unity. The second thing he noticed was there was no distinction between men and women worshiping together. That was very radical for him from a Muslim context where women are not allowed to the mosque. And thirdly, he said, I could not get over the love I saw between the people of the church. Now, we got a lot of problems in our little church. we got a lot of young believers who really don't know the Bible. They've never seen one before until they got to our church. But they've got love down. And they are proclaiming Christ powerfully. And they are bold evangelists. They're not afraid. And then he said in his email, thanks to God for his nice words. Now, Jafar, they went back to their home country for vacation. Jafar and Kurdistan both had jobs uh, in, in, our, in Iraq. But he, because he didn't speak English, didn't hear the warnings not to show pictures of the baptism. And he had taken some pictures. And he, being a nominal Muslim, think, thought people wouldn't care. He showed some pictures. And there were some cousins, Salafists, cousins, who cared very much. And they put death threats out for both Jafar, even though he had not converted, and Miss Kurdistan, and their nine-year-old son. They were hounded out of our city uh, and driven to France, where even there, they encountered some radical Muslims who desired to kill them. They were hounded into a refugee camp in northern, uh, uh, northern Europe, where they are now. All this time, of course, Miss Kurdistan is writing us, and she is telling us about the joy of the Lord. And they've lost everything. Their home, their car, their jobs. They're in a refugee camp in northern Europe, a cold land that they didn't know anything about. We thought Jafar would hate us. Jafar comes to Jesus in a refugee camp, in, uh, you know, in northern Europe. Because he saw what I'm telling you about in John 13 and John 17. That Jesus gives us this great witness of love and unity. Something this Muslim man had never seen before and continued to observe in us as we loved them and cared for them as they were hounded across the Middle East and Europe. They walked faithfully with the Lord. He was baptized in a church up there. Uh, they regularly report into us. They pray for me. They pray for you. It's amazing. One of our greatest witnesses is our love for each other. As Jesus tells us in John 13, and our unity as he tells us in John 17. I'm so grateful that Jafar saw it so cle clearly. And you can pray for them. Pray for Jafar and, and Kurdistan. But I so long for that to mark churches and communities here in America. So in summary, grow your love of Jesus in obedience. 
by living a gospel-centered life where you know the gospel, where you live the gospel, and where you speak the gospel. And live in gospel-centered community. Do that in campus outreach, but more importantly for the long haul, the church, where you know what a church is, where you live and love in a church, and where you ch see the church speak as you pursue love and unity. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for you guys. Lord Jesus, we've looked at the bigger picture of your gospel and how you answer the big questions for us about who you are and who we are and what Christ has done and how do we respond. Lord God, you've given us, you've given us understanding, greater understanding in the word about what it means to uh, take on the identity of Jesus, to understand more deeply with a closer look who Jesus is, who you are. Lord, we've taken a closer look at how to respond to you in faith, trusting in you alone for salvation. And tonight, Lord, we've looked at a closer walk. And I pray, Father, that you will use these things in these students' lives and that you would be honored through them. In Jesus' name, amen. It has been a great joy to be with you this week. Thank you so much. Let's give it up for Mac. We're so thankful for him. Did an amazing job. All right, so now we're going to move into some discussion time again. Just a time to really uh, process what you've been learning from these talks. And again, also just want to highlight the one thought in your notebook. Just write down that one thought of one thing that was really helpful for you that stuck out. We got two discussion questions for you. The first, which area of the gospel life, the gospel life that Mac was talking about, know, live, and speak, uh, do you want to grow in the most? And then the second is, what is your current view of the church and how can you grow in this area? So let's take a few moments to discuss with people around you and then we'll do some worship. Thank you for listening to this message from Campus Outreach. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without written permission from Campus Outreach. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at conyc.com.